This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It's late May, which means that we have roughly a month left before the Supreme Court's summer recess. Joining us today to take a look back at the term so far is the Dean of the Supreme Court's Press Corps, Lyle Denniston. Lyle brings a truly unique perspective to the to the job. He's been covering the court for over six decades and has covered one quarter of all of the justices ever to sit on the court. Although Lyle claims to be mostly retired, you can find him these days at his eponymous blog, Lyle Denniston Law News, and on Twitter at, at L-Y-L-D-E-N. Lyle, thanks so much for joining us. Amy, it's always a treat to be back with you. Good morning. Good morning, Lyle. Um, so, Lyle, you joined us last year to talk about the Supreme Court's experiment at the time, just with two weeks worth of arguments during the May session with telephone arguments in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you went on record early and often as a critic of the, the taking turns format. And we've now had a whole full term of remote arguments. And I think you've got a lot of company. Um, including me. Um, but do you still feel the same way? Well, I think the disaster continued um, unchanged. I mean, it, it, it's a little much of an exaggeration to talk of it as a disaster, but at least it's a disappointment. Um, the, the only positive that I can see, and others have noticed this as well, is the participation of Justice Thomas, which I think is a positive thing. And my own subjective perception is that Justice Thomas, now that he's involved, is asking good questions. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's useful to have him participating uh, because as we all know, um, the oral argument is a kind of a dress rehearsal for the discussion that will continue in the private conference after the argument is over, the oral argument is over. And so it's good to hear where he's coming from. Um, but that's the only positive thing I can say about it. Um, it, it always runs uh, much longer than scheduled, which of course is not much, a terrible voice. Much longer. But well, and also I think it re results in, in a, a real disparity because if there is an amicus appearing, you know, for example, when the government joins in the case as a third party, they're ordinarily allotted only 10 minutes compared to uh, 20 for the upside and 30 for the bottom side, but it winds up being uh, at equal time so that the top side has twice as much argument time as the bottom side. Um, in other words, the people who are appealing are getting twice as much time from the court and time to argue than the people who are resisting the appeal. So, um, uh, and I don't see that there's uh, enough playing off of each other justices' uh, comments. Uh, now and then they try to pick up on each other. But um, if they were actually in the room together and having to talk to each other rather than talking separately into a telephone, I think you would uh, see more of a meaningful exchange. So. Um, I hope that over the break of the summer recess, the court reassesses what to do. I hope they don't abandon the idea 
of a live audio. Um, I'm sure they're not going to go to a live video, but I hope they at least retain the live audio, um, whatever format they adopt. So what do you think will happen with Justice Thomas when they go back to the courtroom, assuming they go back to their normal format? Well, um, I, I'm merely guessing, Amy, uh, but I assume that, uh, that he has enjoyed doing what he's done uh, over the last year and over the prior part of the last term. Um, he seems to be engaged, uh, very actively engaged at times. Uh, and he, uh, he picks up on what others have said. So I think he's tempted or would be tempted at least uh, to resume that kind of participation if they go back to the old format. Though you remember he has often said that uh, the reason he didn't uh, ask many, many questions or ask any questions some years uh, was because the questions that he would have have already been or would be asked by others. I think we've learned over the last year that he does have a unique perspective. Uh, we know certainly that he has a unique perspective from the way he writes his opinions, particularly his dissents. So he, he is his own person, he is his own justice, and that, that unique character of his, his singular character, has come out, um, even though I don't like the format, it is really welcome to have him uh, a visible public participant. So it's late May, but we're still waiting on most of the high profile decisions on the merits. But you know, last time we talked was late July of 2020 and Justice Ginsburg was still on the court. She's been replaced obviously by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. What have we learned so far about this new version of the Roberts Court? Well, one, one observation I would have, uh, and it's fairly obvious, is that I think the Chief Justice is necessarily becoming more comfortable voting with the conservatives. Um, he doesn't have a lot of choice about it because they seem to have uh, solidarity among the five other conservative justices. But I, I thought there were times um, early in the term um, <clears throat> when he was still trying to be um, his own uh, separate identity on the court. But as, uh, as more decisions came out, um, uh, he seemed to be uh, more and more uh, willing to participate uh, without moving towards uh, uh, the progressive side, the, the three progressives. Uh, for example, in what I regard as, uh, as the biggest opinions of the term so far, uh, the two opinions recently uh, authored by Justice Kavanaugh um, on juvenile's uh, life sentences, um, and on unanimous jury verdicts, uh, the chief joined in both of those. Uh, and I think those, those were really breakthrough precedent setting decisions that really upset the constitutional apple cart, I thought. Um, and so I think Roberts is discovering increasingly um, that he's not going to profit very much from having an independent voice. So I think his natural instincts are to be conservative. Um, 
We haven't seen enough yet of Justice Barrett. Um, there have been a couple of times when uh, she has shown um, at least a hint of a streak of independence, uh, but I think it'll take more time to see uh, where she winds up. Um, I think the court now is clearly dominated um, by Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, um, who would be closer to uh, the middle of the conservative block than uh, Thomas and Alito are. Uh, but I tend to think that uh, Kavanaugh's influence is really uh, growing. Um, and Gorsuch has been quite influential, I think, uh, for most of his time on the court. So it obviously is a much more conservative court. Um, it has largely abandoned centrism, I think. Um, and we're going to see a lot of surprises, I think, um, over the next couple of terms at how conservative really it has become. So speaking of, of next term, um, we're recording this a couple of days after the justices announced that they next term are going to hear the challenge to Mississippi's ban on abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. So first of all, they considered this case 13 consecutive times at their conferences before they announced that they were going to take it up. Do you have any sense? I mean, yeah, and you know, we may never know, but what would you guess might have been going on behind the scenes? before they finally announced that they were gonna take the case? Well, I think they were probably talking about whether or not there was a fifth vote um, to, uh, in favor of hearing it. As you know, it only takes four votes. But when the case is really controversial, when, when it is really asking the court uh, to issue a breakthrough decision, the court is not comfortable with only four people saying, let's hear it. Um, for example, the, uh, the big Guantanamo case, uh, which resulted in uh, the decision, uh, the Boumediene decision, the court, um, after first denying cert on that, um, played around with it on rehearing and finally got uh, enough votes for rehearing. But I think that case is instructive that, that the court will not hear a really important, significant case um, it won't do it most of the time if there really are a bare minimum of four, because you want to have a sense institutionally that when you have let yourself in for one of these big, big cases, you want to be able to anticipate a fifth vote so that you will have uh, a, a majority. So I think that was a search for a, a, the indication of broader support for taking it. Uh, I think there, it was obvious to me uh, from the very outset um, that uh, Thomas and Alito uh, would be votes for cert. And I think it was equally obvious, uh, particularly after what uh, Judge Justice Kavanaugh did on the DC circuit in the case involving the young immigrant uh, that became uh, uh, pregnant and had an abortion. I think it was likely that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would have made three and four. So I think after Barrett got there, because uh, she didn't come at the beginning of the term, you know, as you know. So the court had already looked at this case, or at least had it scheduled a couple of times 
uh, before she got there. So I think the multiple times they looked at it, or at least had it scheduled, they were searching for a broader indication that we really want to get involved in this. But now having gotten involved, um, I think there's almost no chance that the uh, Mississippi law will be struck down. Yeah, and so that is, I guess is my next question is, you know, is now that they've spent all of this time deciding whether to take it, that you know, you think there is a, there are five votes. Is there a path? I mean, to a narrower resolution, or is this is this going to be for all the marbles? Um, you know, just to to upend Roe versus Wade. Well, I I think it depends on <clears throat> on uh, you know these days in a pandemic we're always talking about following the science. I think it depends very substantially on whether or not uh, a majority of the court is persuaded by the medical science arguments, arguments which, by the way, are really controversial, about whether the point of viability uh, now occurs at an earlier point. Because um, if viability is still medically um, not reached until the 23rd or 24th week, uh, pregnancy, then um, uh, a, a, a principle based upon viability before you can totally ban abortion um, is not going to be altered. But if, in fact, medical science is finding fetal survivability at an earlier point in pregnancy, then it becomes, it becomes more likely that the viability principle will be abandoned. But it, once it's abandoned, then the question is, at what point post-viability in the old terms, at what point after 23 or 24 weeks um, can, can you totally ban it? And Texas, of course, wants to do, or Mississippi, I'm sorry, wants to do it at 15 weeks. Um, but there, there's a pretty big medical gap between 15 and let's say 23 weeks in the pregnancy cycle. But uh, I, I think if the court is persuaded by the medical science, particularly about uh, the field development, uh, the capacity for pain, uh, the capacity to react to stimuli, uh, if the court is persuaded by that science, um, I think they might well be prepared to abandon uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the viability timeline. And if, if they do abandon that, then uh, if, I, if you know, I don't mind insulting your colleague, it'll be Katie bar the door, uh, you know, because virtually anything might be possible uh, under, the, uh, under the new rubric of uh, a fairly wide state power uh, to limit abortion without uh, the cutoff period of viability, because viability has been a really, really fixed line uh, for, for uh, 48 years. And so abandoning uh, that would be a huge deal. So much to think about with this case. Um, on a, I don't wanna say, I guess, a, another Supreme Court related topic that everyone in Washington is talking about these days um, and that's Justice Stephen Breyer. Uh, will he retire or won't he uh, after this term? Well, I don't think he's ready to go, frankly, because uh, he, with Ruth Bader now gone, um, 
he really is the anchor of the uh, three justice block. Um, um, he, but he doesn't have a lot of personal pride, I don't think. Um, I think he's a very solid, uh, more or less moderate uh, judge. Um, but I think he really likes his influence now. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's becoming a, a, a little more powerful, even with the, uh, with the conservative bloc so much in charge. Um, he now and then wanders a bit away from the bloc. But uh, I think as a personal matter, um, he's obviously uh, not feeling overburdened. He's writing a new book, as you know, yeah. um, and uh, none of them seems to be uh, terribly troubled by uh, a workload that only produces 53 to 55 <laughs> decisions a year. So uh, they all have lots of time to globe trot and trot around the country and write books and give lectures. So I don't think he's feeling any burden of it of the workload, but uh, my sense is that he's not going to react to pressure, um, no matter how much that pressure builds. And last question, anything else that you're watching for that you think we should be watching for as we get closer to the end of the term? Well, um, I, I I'm not sure this is going to be a factor remaining in the term, but I am really fascinated by the exaggerated development of what's called the shadow docket. That is the court deciding cases uh, seemingly on the merits or close to the merits without full briefs and full oral argument, uh, as they did so many times uh, overturning state and local regulations on uh, quarantining or, or uh, mask wearing uh, and the public meetings uh, during the pandemic. So um, I think that's going to be an increasing phenomenon where the court decides more cases uh, without uh, briefing and oral argument. Um, and uh, I think that's really a, a long-term threat uh, to the credibility of the court and um, the, uh, the acceptability of its final judgments. Um, I think um, the big one I'm waiting for, of course, is what they do with the Affordable Care Act. Um, <clears throat> I'm a little surprised that Obamacare, as it's called, I'm a bit surprised that that hasn't come down yet, um, which tells me that it's, uh, it's a more difficult decision than I thought it would be. Uh, I thought the, uh, the government would, uh, the, uh, the, the supporters of the Affordable Care Act would prevail over the government and over Texas and the Texas coalition. Uh, but uh, I'm also anticipating maybe more for next term than this term, that we're gonna have many more election cases out of this uh, rash of new laws that are being passed by the state legislatures. And I think the hints that we got during the Supreme Court's reaction to the cases after the November presidential election 
is a pretty strong indication that when these new cases come up, the state legislature is going to wind up with a lot more power to pass election restrictions than they had before. So I think that's a carryover from the way the court reacted to uh, um, the litigation, uh, even though they were unwilling to hear most of the Trump cases, there were clear signals uh, uh, that justices like uh, like Alito uh, and uh, Thomas are much more sympathetic to uh, the, the constitutional power of state legislatures to control how elections are conducted and. Uh, so most of this new legislation, I think, even though it, is a, it seems to me often to be a contradiction of the 15th Amendment, uh, as well as some parts of the Voting Rights Act, I think many of those pieces of legislation are going to survive in this court. Maybe some of those election law cases will come back on the shadow docket. We can combine all of all of these threads uh, under one. Um, Lyle Denniston, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to talk to you. It's a treat for me too. Uh, thanks so much and uh, um, stay cool for the rest of the term. Uh, you too, you too. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.